0: Father, I pray that You'd help us to glean from Your Word. Your Word, it's a living Word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides asunder. It pierces. It's searching. It's Your Word, we pray, that You would speak, O Lord. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'd like to look at the first five verses. The first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, and we know what words, primarily chapters 14, 15, and 16 that we've just come through. When Jesus got done saying those things, notice this, He lifted up His eyes to heaven. And and I wanted to just stop right here at the beginning and note that. You remember how the tax collector was? You remember over in Luke chapter 18 when the tax collector's praying? What did it say? You remember what it says about him and his eyes? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Jesus, isn't that interesting? Where is God? Is he, is he only up? Is He not down? Is He not around? Is He not to the left and to the right? Isn't it interesting? There's this concept. There, there's just a, a sense that we have that God is up. And even the Lord Jesus Christ, as He walked this earth as a man, He lifted His eyes up to heaven. I, I, I think it's always interesting to note the motion, the motions, the the movements of Christ, what he did with his eyes, what he did with his hands when we're told. Because that's the closest we get to knowing what Jesus looked like. I, I don't know how it is with you. Ever since I've been saved, I despise images of Christ. I don't like the movies. I don't like the images. Because they never portray it right. If you want an image of Christ, it's best to let God develop that image for us through Scripture. That is the accurate image. When Jesus prayed, now you can, you can see Him. You can envision this. He lifts His eyes up to heaven. And He said, Father, He's addressing His Father with eyes lifted to heaven. The hour has come I think it's. I mean, based on how you read this, it seems like they've they've already left the upper room. There's different reasons to believe that. Some believe back in 15 when he's talking about the true vine, he had already gone out. He was already en route to Gethsemane. He came across the vine. He used the imagery that he had. There's there's reasons. Guys argue back and forth. Who it doesn't matter. But you know, you can lift your eyes to heaven whether you're in a room like this with a ceiling on it or whether you're outside under the stars. We raise, why? Because we think of God being upwards. We think of a highness. Isn't that what you call your king? Your highness? Do you even think about those words? Your highness. It's just this idea that they're high. Well, God is up. God is high. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him, He's speaking third person here, not me, not you have given me, you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, this is what I want to cover today. If you've ever seen Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on this, you know, he, it takes him six or eight sermons to get through these five verses. Undoubtedly, there's, it's that rich. This is what we know is a high priestly prayer. Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on the high priestly prayer that he came across some 17th century preacher who said that this is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth. Now, Lloyd-Jones quotes the guy, but how can he know that? Well, he can't know that. I think it's the greatest recorded. To say it's the greatest prayed, well, Jesus undoubtedly prayed many other prayers. Undoubtedly, he was the greatest praying man that ever lived. And so to say that his prayers were the greatest, but we don't know all of his prayers, and so to say that this is exactly the greatest, it certainly is the greatest recorded. It's said of John Knox, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, But it is said that John Knox, when he knew that he was dying, he asked his wife to read this. And she was actually reading it as he passed out into eternity. So what is John 17? What do we have going on here? Eleven men. Remember what we have. Eleven men Jesus has been speaking to. Jesus is done. He's done with the exhortations and the teachings and the commandments and the pressing these guys with all this instruction that He gave, the promises that He gave. Chapters chapters 14, 15, 16 are over with. And it's like one more thing. Did you recognize this? That after this prayer, Jesus has almost nothing more to say to His disciples before trial, before scourging, before the cross, this is one last, one last. And uh, I'm just going to call it a thing. I wish I had better, better adjectives to use, better descriptive terms. But it it's it's the last thing that Jesus is going to give to His disciples. And it's amazing. It's only recorded in John. But it's, it's one last thing that He's going to do for these guys. Now, you have to remember, it is for these guys. You say, well, Jesus is praying to His Father. Yes, but isn't it interesting? He's praying audibly with the guys present. Y- you recognize what's happening? This is a prayer that is meant to be overheard. It is not meant to be secret. Jesus could have easily prayed silently or He couldn't have gone off by Himself and prayed audibly. But He doesn't do it. He's praying in the presence of these guys. And so, here we are. The last days of His life. It's the, the, the last hours of His life in this world before being resurrected and walking 40 days before the ascension. But he's come down to the hour. He's come down to where he's facing this reality. He's he's about ready to suffer. He's preparing these guys for the mission that is set before them. He's, t- he's preparing these guys to not fall away. And here's what he does he gives this prayer. And then, what is this prayer? Look at verse nine. I am praying for them. You see, yes, it's a prayer between He and His Father. But who is it for? He's praying for them. And it's like I said, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. He's praying for us. Do you recognize that this, whatever was meant for the early disciples, for them hearing this audibly spoken, you have to recognize, Jesus on purpose, God wanted His Son to pray this prayer before going to the cross To be overheard by His disciples. Why? Because after the teaching and the exhortation and the promises, He wanted His people to hear this prayer for them so that they could get a feel for the intimacy between the Son and the Father and how they fit in there. And we fit in there. Whatever you're hearing for them, if you go to verse 20, it's for you too. You can't get away from that. This is a prayer as how... as to how the Lord is handing His disciples off to His Father. He's saying, Father, I kept these guys. I was with these guys. I took care of these guys. And now I'm handing them over to Your care. And you see that. Verse 11, Holy Father. You see where it says that? Holy Father, keep them in Your name which You have given Me. He's praying to the Father to look after His disciples. And and not just silently. Brethren, our Lord's great concern is that His followers might know something about the security they have in the care and the affection and the love between the Father and the Son and how we fit into that. This is this, this, entirely meant to be overheard. Why? Because God wants us to know this. He wanted them to know it. He wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to contemplate it. He wants us to study it. He wants us to think about it. Brethren, do you realize these are exciting times? Jesus is coming to the very pinnacle of redemptive history. These guys are being prepared. They think hey, everything's going wrong. But these this is exciting times ushering in this This era, this epoch of where the Spirit of God is going to take these guys and empower them. And they're going to go out into the world and with their witness, their words. How do you think people like us came to believe their words? How do you think verse 20 is a reality? Because those guys had words that others would believe. And the only way those others are going to believe them is if these guys went out and they propagated this all the place and they wrote all the letters that they wrote. They wrote the Gospels. These are, folks, powerful, climactic moments in redemptive history. And what we have to recognize is these are the facts. This is no fairy tale. This is not, not something that was just dreamt up. This actually happened. And so here's the first thing. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Now, I you know when I got thinking about that hour? The hour has come. How many years? Just, just roughly. Think about it. Do the math. Let, let's start out with this assumption that the world is 6,000 years old. Let's take Genesis and what Carlos said to us literally. 6,000 years old. How many years, roughly, are covered by the book of Genesis? Any idea? It's from Adam to Moses. Now, let's go back to Jesus from where we are here. Roughly how many years? 2,000. Roughly, how long was the old covenant enacted? The law. How how long was Israel under that old covenant system? Yeah, if you, if you take all the way from Abraham down to the coming of Christ, we're talking about fifteen hundred years. Okay, so if you got two thousand back there and fifteen hundred back there, then and the rest of that time is captured in Genesis from creation all the way to Moses. So, roughly, what is it? Do your math. 6,000 minus 1,500 minus 2,000 equals? 2,500. So, so here's the thing. Genesis, 2,500 years. Roughly. From Exodus to Malachi, roughly 1,500 years. When you come into the New Testament, You have a whole book of John. John doesn't have anything about him in his youth. Basically, John covers the three years of his ministry. A whole book. The fact is that when you get all the way into like verse 6, you have the Passover. Do you recognize from the Passover up till the next Passover, a whole year of His life, that last year of His ministry, it fits into seven chapters. And then you get to chapter 13, and then you have seven chapters that cover a oh, one day of Jesus' life. Do you know when you take the four Gospels and you boil them all down? There's 89 chapters... 29 of those in all four Gospels, 29 of those chapters is in the last week of his life. Brethren, what I'm getting at is this. You can take swaths of 2,500 years and stick it in one book. And what God is doing is the closer we get to Christ, the more, the more this thing gets strung out, the more detail we get, the more God wants us to see it. He wants us to know the details. Why? Because we're heading towards this final day before Jesus goes to the cross what, what we see is this, just the emphasis, the degree of emphasis and repetition when you get into the life of Christ and then in the ministry of Christ primarily and then the last week of His life. And that's where we're coming. This hour, there can be no doubt to the emphasis. This hour is the absolute focus. It is the climax of this redemptive history. It's the climax of everything that God wants us to know. It's the climax of revelation. It's the climax of what the Lord came to do. Listen to through John, how he's talking. You know, you know, he said there when he turned the water into wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then again in John seven, he said they were seeking to arrest him, but nobody laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight, the same thing again. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then when you get to John twelve, Jesus says, the hour has come. And again, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What we have to recognize is this. God's Son, stepped out of the eternal halls of glory. We know what happened. We know He came. The Word became flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh. This is what Scripture teaches us. God manifest in the flesh. And he came down, and he took upon himself the form of man. He became a servant, emptied. And what did he do? He walked this world, and he, he came to die. There was one thing, precisely for this purpose. You read this, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. For this purpose. For what purpose? You know what purpose he came for? He came and he emptied himself, and he became man so that he would die for man. He came under the law. He was born of a woman, came under the law. He came here. And, and to what? Basically, to be obedient all the way to death, even death on the cross. And that's that. That's the hour. That's what we're moving towards that, for this purpose, specifically to die. Do you know this? Do you realize that this hour—it's the most crucial hour in all of history. That's that's where we're at. The hour has come, Father. This has to do with the the. Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying... You recognize what this is all about. That This hour is not only the pinnacle of redemptive history, it's just the pinnacle of God glorifying the the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the the Father. Since the beginning of the world, nothing compares to it. This is literally the turning point. This, This is the greatest, the highest, most pivotal point. Brethren, every man's eternal position hinges on this. Because if you're going to be saved, it hinges here. If you're going to be lost, it's because you don't believe this and you've rejected this. And you know what? If a man is lost, what does this hour say? I mean, listen, when we find the wrath of God come upon the Son of God, what is that telling us? That's telling us what sin deserves. It's telling us the only way of escape, but it's also telling us what's going to happen to us if we don't take this way of escape. I mean, everything hinges Right here, the highest, the most pivotal pivotal point. It just determines everything. Everything hinges on it. Everything hangs on it. it and, and it's troubling. This is what He says. Now is my soul troubled. Troubled. But you know what is also the most freeing hour? Listen how Jesus speaks in, in John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. You see that? The hour, not only is his soul troubled because of certain aspects of what that hour is going to bring, but it's also the freeing hour for him. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. But to put it in proper perspective, Jesus says something else about this hour. Listen to this. You've read this. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And I just got thinking, the power of darkness has come to this culmination. You remember how the devil was operating? If you got eyes to see, he was seeking to work through Haman. He wanted Haman to take out all the Jews. Take out all the Jews, you take out the Messianic line. You go further. See how he worked through Herod? You take all the babies out of Bethlehem and that's where the baby was supposed to be born. And you take the Christ out. And you just you watch this. Think of the hatred. Isn't it amazing? Jesus would do an act of utter kindness and the Pharisees and the scribes got together in just their fangs and venom and they sought to destroy him. And who were they? They were children of the devil. That's what Jesus said. Your father is the devil. God's not your father. he seen Judas. Satan entered into him. Well, there's this culmination. This hour is coming to a head. Evil men, evil angels, they're conspiring to destroy the Son of God. And what he says here is that's their hour, the power of darkness. All come together. But what is it that Je- is that why Jesus is all troubled? Is he really troubled because of the devil? Listen, he was out in the wilderness all alone with the devil. I don't find that he ever trembled. I don't find that he was full of sorrow. I don't find that he was sorrowed unto death. I don't find that his soul was troubled. He says, now in my soul troubled. Why? What was so troubling? What troubled him? Well, listen to this. Just just after he prays this prayer, he's out in the garden. It says he fell on the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. What? Not, not the freedom. Not the hour that he departs and goes to be his father. That's not what he's wanting to be delivered from. Not even because it's the hour of darkness. Not because it's their hour. What is this? The hour might pass from him. Well, if we read other accounts, he said in Matthew's account, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And we know how he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Ah, there's what troubled him. There's a cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he says in John, drink the cup the Father has given me. You see, that's it's not what the devil's given to him. You see what's happening at this hour? His father is bringing a cup to him. And he is troubled. Imagine this. He said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. Let me ask you, what do you think that would mean for you? What kind of sorrow do you think you would have to be experiencing that. We can exaggerate. We use exaggerated, exaggerative language all the time. Jesus isn't exaggerating. He's saying he is literally experiencing sorrow that is taking him to the verges of death. What do you think is in that cup? What do you. Lord, Jesus isn't even to the cross yet. What is it? He's just looking into the contents of the cup and the sorrow that comes out of there and lays hold and wrenches him so that blood, sweat, that is what's in that cup. And it's his father's cup. His father brings that cup to him, sorrows unto death. And there it is. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And that's the cause of his trouble. It's the fact that Jesus knew precisely what was going to happen in that hour. The full, fierce wrath of God against sin. He was going to become sin. We know what Scripture says. I'm poured out like water. Oh, my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax." It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My strength dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Do you recognize? My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in Scripture that Jesus does not address God as His Father it's the only time. It's like on that cross, He was used to looking up like He did. He raises His eyes to heaven in this prayer, and He prays, Father. On that cross, He raised His eyes up, and He could not find that face of His Father. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. In fact, all that looked back at Him not that smiling face anymore. What looked back at him was a face of wrath, the fierceness. He wasn't able to find the fatherliness anymore. He always could, no matter how he suffered at the hands of men or at the hands of the devil. There was his father's smile, always with him, never forsook him. The one thing the Son of God trembled at and shrank back from in that hour was the fact that he had to look into his father's face and find no fatherlessness, and find no smile, only wrath, only fierceness. Only that's That's it. The Father didn't spare His own Son. That's what we're told in Scripture. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's for that purpose. Why? God can't be just and be the justifier of people like me and you. You know what you've done. I mean, think about it. Think about your lost days. You think God can just sweep that under the rug and take you to glory? Can He just wink at your sin? Any of you ever been drunken fools? Any of you just had a foul mouth? Any of you thieves? Any of you sexually immoral? Any of you been proud? Any of you been self-righteous? God can't just look at those things. God can't look at the perverseness of our pride and our selfishness. God doesn't let selfish people, cowards, cowards don't go to heaven. Drunks don't go to heaven. Sexually immoral people don't go to heaven. Just selfish, self serving people, greedy people, idolaters, they don't go to heaven. And God doesn't just sweep that under the rug. There's a cup that when the very Son of God looked into that cup, he said, it just, it just, something came out of that cup. It sank down into the soul. Even in, I'm talking anticipation of it. Not even having experienced it yet. Then he's saying, what I, I feel in my soul, I'm at the verge of death. Who are you? You're the Son of God. And you're, you're saying you're at the verge of death? What are you, a lightweight? Are you weak? If anybody wasn't, it was Him. And yet, brethren, I'm telling you, you do not want to die lost. When the Son of God shirks back and shrinks back from what's in that cup, you do not want to miss heaven and have that cup forced to your lips forever. This is this is great. Right? Listen, God cannot, no matter what the Muslims say, God cannot be merciful unless Somebody drinks that cup in your place. God is not just merciful. God doesn't sweep it under the rug. Folks, this is real. This literally happened. This shows what sin deserves. These are the facts. So, yeah, Isn't it amazing? It's like, did the devil really think this was going to be victory? I mean, he went into Judas and he he's like moving all these guys to do this as though what? He's going to go to the cross? It's like the devil... Deceived himself into thinking that he was going to get the victory through this and and yet this is the very thing that crushed his head. Have you ever seen the picture? Who's that guy who's the guy that makes the tracks and does all the the imagery you know the pictures like where it shows Christ on the cross, and the head is the head of the serpents being crushed. Far, far from victory for the powers of darkness. It wasn't that. It was God's greatest hour for His glory, and the Son's glorified by the Father. The Father's glorified in the Son. I mean, that's what's happening. A, and and you know what, folks? There's no glory here for you and me. Did did you notice that? Jesus is going to accomplish everything that the Father sent Him to do. There's nothing about what we're doing. All the disciples are doing and all we can do is sit back and be an audience and listen to this. We don't have a part to play here. This is We don't get any credit. We don't get any of the glory from this. Man is absolutely helpless in this matter of salvation. It's all of God. This is clear from verse 1. The glory of the Son, the glory of the Father. Say, think, think about it. What puts God's wrath on display like the cross? What puts His justice on display like the cross? And at the same time, what puts His mercy and His love and His kindness, His compassion, His graciousness on display like the cross? You see, they all come together. It is. It. Do you recognize the brilliance and the wisdom of God in doing this? Actually having mankind come into the world, fall into sin, and then have His Son come rescue us from it? You have to recognize what this does more than anything else. Is it shows us the attributes of God. It shows us his wisdom. It shows us his power. You say, what? And men, you know, a vast majority of men are going to die and go to hell. And, yeah. brethren, I didn't write this book. I am told that there are vessels of wrath for the sake of putting God's wrath on display, and there are vessels of mercy for the sake of putting God's mercy on display. And you know, Paul basically argues, who is the clay to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Brethren, we have to bow before this. Whether you like it or don't like it, it's fearful men don't like it. Why? Because they don't like a God they can't control. This is a God we can't control. And yet the thing is, what we have to recognize is, look, it's the Son of God coming to this hour. hour. One hour where he's going to take that cup to his own lips. Why? In place of people that will come to find their refuge in him. That's it. Never had God so fully and completely put all his attributes on display. His love. His holiness. Like in this hour. Okay, next thing. Verse 2. Notice the three givens. There's three of them here. Since you have given Him authority. So the Father gives two things to the Son. And the Son gives one thing to God's people. You see him there. Since you, Father, have given Him the Son. Jesus again is speaking of Himself in third person. The Father gives the Son authority over all flesh. To give so that the Son can give eternal life to all people that the Father has given to the Son. So you see the three givens there. The Father gives two things to the Son. The Father gives the Son authority. The Father gives Son a people. And then the Son, in turn, gives to the people eternal life because He's been given the authority to do so. And you notice this, Jesus has authority over all flesh. There's 8.1 billion people upon this earth. All the Hindus, all the Muslims, all the Buddhists, all the Catholics, all, all the animists, all the pagans, all the atheists. He is in control of all flesh. And among all the flesh, there's a certain people. And Jesus has authority. It's, it's interesting. There's this 8.1 billion people And Jesus has authority given to him by the Father to bestow eternal life on a certain number of these people. That's precisely what it's teaching. And and notice this. Notice how often this is emphasized through this prayer. Maybe you've never noticed this before, but look look again at verse 2. Notice what it says at the end. To all whom you have given him. You like that? Notice verse 6. Notice how this is repeatedly emphasized. I have manifested your name to who? The people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and here it is again. You gave them to me. You like that? Look at verse 9. I'm praying for them. For who? Not everybody. I'm not praying for the world. But for who? Those whom you have given me. They are yours. Look at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Who? Which you have given me. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. What's this? What's the plain teaching here? Listen, if anything should strip away the idea of the smallness of God when it comes to salvation, you just have to recognize nobody gets saved unless God saves them. Nobody gets saved. You have to recognize this. The teaching here is plain. Out of the 8.1 billion people, none of them are saved unless the Father has determined before this world ever began that you are going to be one of the people to whom the Father is going to give to the Son. That's, That's so obvious from this teaching. Jesus is praying. Who is he praying for? Not for the world this This idea that God is a Father, universal fatherhood of all of humanity, nope, nope, yeah, it's not in Scripture. The idea that Jesus has this equal love for everybody, nope, he's not even praying for everybody, folks. This endearing, this very intimate prayer is specifically for the people that has been given to the Son by the Father. You can't get away from that. It's the same that Jesus said before. Listen to this. In John 10, He says, I give them eternal life. Who? They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me. There it is again. It's greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Brethren, you know what this is meant to do? Not cause us all to freak out and start thinking about how unfair God is. Do you recognize what this is meant to do? This is meant to bring security. Like you have to recognize who you are. This is not fly-by-night, folks. Not just because you decided to believe one day. What this is speaking to God's people is you are so secure. No one can pluck you out of His hand. He get, if you, Look, if you're a Christian and you came to recognize that You had a disease and you needed the doctor and you cried out to him and he's come and he's precious to you. Now, not that you're a perfect person, but that's where your hope is. Your hope is on what Christ accomplished in that hour. Then what he's saying to you is, you are so absolutely secure. You are one of his people that he's given to the Son. And you're secure. He's never going to lose you. You Nobody's going to pluck you out of his hand. It says this, this is the will of Him who sent me. Jesus says this in John 6, that I should lose, noth- lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You talk about security? If you've been given to the Son, you're going to be raised up on the last day. That's to life, folks. No question about it. God the Son has specifically come into the world to this very hour to do what? To give eternal life to these specific people and to no one else. And it's for these alone that He prays. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me. They are yours, a people given by the Father to the Son, that's a plain teaching of scripture. The Son came from glory in order to accomplish everything that was necessary in order for him to be able to give eternal life to these exact people. And God has set apart for himself these people. And hey, listen, Listen, there's one more verse here that you probably want to hear included. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You like that? If you're among the 8.1 billion and you've been given from the Father as a gift to the Son, well, the Son has authority to bestow on you eternal life. And in bestowing that, you know what's going to happen? Your heart's going to be drawn to Him. You're going to go to Him. And you're saying, but I still feel like I'm left out. I'm on the outside. Nope, nope. Not if you complete John 6, 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so look, you know what happens to all the people who are not given to the Son by the Father, they don't come to Christ. And you know why they don't come? Because they don't want to come. And nobody should be upset with God if they don't desire to come. Why are you going to find fault with God if you'd rather have your sin than have Him? I mean, if you like your sin, be content in your sin. But if you find anything desirable in Christ, go to Him. And if you go to Him, He's not going to cast you out. Okay, Next thing, because look at verse 3. Well, just think about verse 1. Who's being talked about? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So you get the father and son. When you come to verse 3, father and son are absent. But notice the titles, notice the names given. This is eternal life that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Don't you like that? The only true God. I am convinced when I read something like this that we are in the habit of not talking like the Bible. And I I would just ask you, when you talk about the Father, are you in the habit of calling the Father the only true God? Typically us Reformed Christians, we don't talk that way. We want to say God the Father, God the Son. Isn't that the way we like to talk? We want to protect the Trinity. you feel that? you feel that compulsion? Do you ever call God the Father the only true God? And yet, Scripture speaks this way. You see, the Bible is always calling us to realize that there is only one true God. Have you noticed that? I just think if you and I had written many of the verses that we find in our Bible, we probably wouldn't have written it the way that the Spirit of God inspired the writers. Or even, in, uh, even Jesus, the way He spoke here in this prayer. We don't like... You know what? Do you like it when you're down in the city center and a Muslim comes up to you and says, I've had this happen. Have any of you had this happen where the Muslim wants you to turn to John 17.3? You ever had that happen, Sonny? Why do they want you to turn to John 17.3? Right. They think that it is going to disprove Our Trinitarian beliefs, does it disprove yours? Look at it. Look at 17.3. How does it prove it? It says that God the Father is the only true God. So where does that leave Jesus Christ? Does it leave Him not being the only true God? You see, that's that's what they would like to have us believe. And see, we like to say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we want to emphasize the Trinity. We want, we want all the persons to be shown to be deity. We, and we'll we we'll, we we'll do not have no problem having the Father first, because we like to keep the proper hierarchy, but we we want to establish deity. And Jesus doesn't talk that way. Listen, have you ever read in Scripture where, like in Feet in Ephesians, where it says that there's one spirit? Doesn't call him God. But it says there's one spirit, there's one body. There's one Spirit. There's one Lord. You ever read that? And then there's one God and Father of all. Or have you ever read this? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now here's the thing. You have God, you have man. Why isn't Jesus placed between them as a mediator as the God-man? We talk that way all the time. Why does Scripture specifically say the man Jesus Christ? Well, we don't like that if we're trying to be Trinitarian. Or, have you ever read this? This is one of my favorites. Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, Christians, for us, there is one God. Who is it? The Father. For us, there's one God, and it's the Father. Everybody comfortable? That's Scripture. And... Well, it says, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Did you catch that? Not all possess this knowledge. Do you possess this knowledge? Do you possess the knowledge where you are comfortable saying there is one God and it's the Father? There is one true God. It is the Father. And there is one One Lord Jesus Christ. Are you comfortable talking that way? The Bible's very comfortable talking that way. What do we do with all that? Uh, Listen, I think what we do with it is this. We obviously recognize that the Spirit of God is not always so intent in inspiring Scripture to uphold the doctrine of the Trinity the way we like to see it upheld. Why? Because the Spirit of God is not always, His chief interest is not always emphasizing the things that oftentimes we find ourselves emphasizing. It's very important that we not spend the majority of our time with our noses stuck in systematic theologies. We need to spend the majority of time with our noses stuck in Scripture. And we need to really get comfortable with talking the way Scripture does. Now look at there is a place where the Spirit of God is interested in telling us. Ananias and Sapphira, they fell into sin and when they lied to God, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. When they were lying to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. There's a place where it tells us that Jesus is the I Am. There's a place where Scripture tells us He's El Gabor. He's the mighty God. There's a place where it says, in the beginning, we know this, the Word. We know He was with God and He is God. And we know, Brethren, there are places in Scripture where it wants to tell us. But what we need to recognize is this. The Godness of God starts with the Father. You recognize like Ruby and I were talking about this the other day, but you know the way the scripture portrays this is like God the Father is the Son, and the son s u n and from the sun the beams emanate. You have to recognize this a sun, son s o n has no definition. He has no identity apart from the Father. The Father is the source. Radiance. When I say Son, S-U-N, and like Jesus is like the beams that come out of it. Where do I get that? He's the radiance of the glory of God. And so, what we need to recognize is you can't even begin to define who the Son is apart from the father the godness of god originates in the father that's not to say that jesus is created listen there are mysteries about the trinity but what we need to recognize is that the our scriptures have no problem saying you know what there's one true god and it's the father it's not the son it's the father and there's one lord jesus christ and that's not the father that's the son and the Spirit oftentimes is just happy to be quietly off to the side. This is, we just have to deal... With this, But listen, what's eternal life? What is eternal life? Do you know what God said through the prophet Amos of Israel? He said, you alone among all the nations have I known. That means there's an intimacy there. What's eternal life? Intimacy with the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. You see, you can't even begin to define eternal life without Jesus Christ in the equation. You can't. And we know what he said to Philip. Philip, you're saying, show me the Father. Don't you recognize if you've seen me? I'll tell you, one of the verses that ought to blow you away is John 1.18. And I know there's a textual issue there. When the King James, you have this idea that nobody has seen God, but the only begotten Son, the monogamous. He declares Him. When you come along to the, the more recent translations, they say... That nobody has seen God but the only God who is in his bosom. Robert Raymond says that the, probably the best reading there is no one has seen God but the Son himself God who's in the bosom. He declares him. What does a word do? Words express. Words have meaning. If I take a word like Mississippi or Independence, you know what those mean. They're a series of letters. They're a word and they have meaning. Why would John ever pick word to describe Jesus Christ? Because he declares who God is. He's the eminence. He's the radiance. The fullness of the Godhead is in Him bodily. and. And it isn't just to know the only true God, the Father. But here, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the radiance. I am the express image. And eternal life is to know us both. You see, he puts himself in the same category with his Father. You can't get away from that. So whatever the Muslims want to say, See, the problem is they don't put Jesus in the same category with the, with the Father, but that's exactly where Jesus puts him. And they deny so many texts that are very plain that indicate, listen, I'll tell you what, one of the men that just heard this thing prayed, he did not think to himself when all of a sudden Jesus appeared there among the disciples and he fell down and he said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say oh no I shouldn't have said that you know back there when he was praying in the upper room or wherever he was at that time uh, he said that God he said the father was the only true god. He was, I can't call him god. Well you see Thomas what's wrong your theology's bad. Didn't you catch the drift there in John 17:3? No, he never came to that conclusion. The conclusion listen even his enemies knew when he was calling himself the son of god. They said, we're stoning you, not because of any good work you do, but because you're calling yourself, you're calling God your Father, you're calling yourself the Son, you're making yourself equal with Him. They knew exactly what He was doing. Anyway, I know why I'm out of time. Anyway, so be it. In verse 4, He says, I glorified, Dad and you. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I just say this: He accomplished it, folks. Every single thing that you need to be saved, He accomplished. What did He need to do? Well, He needed to come under the law. Why? He needed to keep the law. He needed to fulfill all righteousness. What else did He need to do? He needed to be a perfect example. That's what Scripture says. We have this an example in Christ. He needed to be made made like us. He was made like us in every respect save sin. Even calls it the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to become man, and He did, just like us. And what did He have to do? Keep the law, he did, came under the law. What did he have to do? He had to die in the place. He accomplished it all. The whole time he was here, the Father said, My son in whom I'm well pleased. And the last thing he says is, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, verse five, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And I'm just I'll just say this. A little further down, notice what he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's written a little bit different there. He had glory before the foundation of the world. He had the love of the Father before the foundation of the world. Brethren, the scale of it all, do you recognize what it means to be saved? We're being swallowed up in the glory. We have images of, of Christ Entering into the presence of God, and it's all about us. He's paved a way for us to behold his glory, to be with him, to be drawn up into this triune love. And, and you know what? You have some pictures of this in scripture. And I'm, I just leave you with this. Lift up your heads, O Gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. This is Him entering back into the presence of the Father to reclaim the former glory. O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This is Psalm 24. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. You recognize Jesus entered those gates, triumphant, mighty in battle. He triumphed over all those powers of darkness. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the King of glory. Selah in Dan 7. Daniel, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, languages, you see it, authority over all the flesh should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We must realize these truths are truths, yes, about Him, but they're truths about us. This prayer is about us. This prayer is about how we're going to be kept and how we're involved in the love and just what God's doing for us. I'll tell you this, we just have to think once in a while, brethren. You know what? You know what? One of the biggest things to solve the problems and the doldrums in our life and get us past the difficulties is just to stand back and ask ourselves once in a while where are we headed? What's the glory? I mean, that's where we're headed, towards the glory. Father, I want them to be with me where I am so that they can behold the glory. This is the triumphant glory. These gates, these everlasting gates, let Him in. Before the Ancient of Days, He's presented. He's victorious in all the kingdoms and all the tribes and all the tongues laid before Him. So often we get into this, brethren, we get into this situation where we feel like, oh, because of our sin, and we just, oh, we got to placate God, and God is... He's kind of angry with us and frowning at us. And and so often we just feel like God is opposed to us and he's antagonistic towards us. And somehow we, we need to appease him. And he's so, he's so unwilling to be kind and gracious to us. We think of him as kind of somewhere far off out there in the eternal glory and his absolute righteousness and not at all, especially disposed towards us. And we feel we have to f- put forth these great efforts. And if you just listen to the tone of this prayer, it's like, you're my people. I have sought to love you, and I, my Father is going to love you, and you are secure, and you are safe, and you're on your way to glory. And when Jesus prayed, He wants you to see the glory that He had with the Father. Listen, that's where you're headed. And He's going to get you there. And He's going to take you safely. If the, This prayer is just about security. Christian, you just feel, you feel the security of all of it. He did not spare His only Son. He offered Him up for us all. Obviously, that all is restricted to these people. But how, I just emphasize this again. You young people, you're sitting here, listen to this. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. How can you know? How can you know you're one of those that is a gift from the Father, the Son? You go to Christ. And He he won't cast you out. Don't say you can't come. Don't say He didn't elect you. Don't go down that path. Don't mope around. Self-pity. Oh, woe is me. God is mean. God is cruel. God elects people. God sets his love on some people. How unfair is that? What's really fair is if he sent us all to hell. The very fact that he singled people out to save is an absolute gracious act on his part. And when he bids you come, and if you come, he won't cast you out, what more can you say? You can't find fault with him. If you're willing to be saved, he's willing to save you. Father, I pray that in these weeks ahead that you would just give us a good time with Mac and may the may the conference be profitable. May this time in John seventeen be good and rich for our souls. I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.